the Reverend Pam asked me to prepare something for this morning. And I apologize in advance if this runs a little long, but I don't think you'll be disappointed. Be the change you want to see in the world. I was dozing in my living room chair on Friday when those words, spoken as clearly as someone were standing over me, brought me to a fully awakened state. Mind you, I was all alone in my house, except for my two dogs who were sleeping across the room. The TV and radio were not on. That famous quote that we all know so well from Mahatma Gandhi had simply and rather loudly been voiced as a wake-up call inside my own head. I knew instantly that this was the seed from which I would grow an essay to read for you today. Change. Nothing do we do more often than something pertaining to change. We change our minds, change our shoes, and we change the channel when we don't like the news. The weather changes, whether we like it or not, and we change our plans if it's too cold or too hot. Our bodies change in time with age, and our moods can swing from love to rage. The seasons change four times a year, and we change our clocks to save daylight, or so I hear. There's pocket change when we pay in cash, and when stock markets change, there's fear of a crash. People change jobs, houses, and cars, while scientists change the way we view Mars. Medical marvels change death into life, and spiritual change can bring peace out of strife. So now let me return to those words from Gandhi about being the change that we want to see. I recall telling people semi-jokingly in years past that I was going to go out and save the world. What I meant by save the world is actually the same thing I think we mean when considering Gandhi's quote about changing the world. I think what we want to change about the world, or save it from, so to speak, is suffering. Many of us, especially Unitarian Universalists, are quite sensitive about matters of world suffering. We often support global campaigns to end hunger, fight tyranny, cure diseases, and protect the precious earth. World peace and global protection are wonderful goals and ideals. I believe wholeheartedly in supporting efforts to improve conditions for any plant, animal, or human being living anywhere on the planet. And towards such, effort, toward such efforts, I will always contribute whatever I can. It seems interesting to me, though, that when we zoom out and view the world or even our own community on a large scale, we're more able to see the contrast between comfort and suffering than when we look at the world right in front of us in the present moment. Perhaps this has more to do with the various levels of suffering than the actual distance from which we view it. I like to reference Abraham Maslow's hierarchy of needs when looking at the various levels of suffering, and especially human suffering. According to the hierarchy, when basic tangible needs to support life are not met, such as food, clean water, shelter, medical care, etc., we can more readily see suffering because of its external physical forms. We can then more directly address the suffering and begin changing it into comfort because we can provide external tangible solutions, such as money, supplies, and materials. As we move up to the higher levels of human needs, such needs as love, acceptance, self-esteem, and purpose, the suffering from lack in these areas becomes less obvious both in others and ourselves. 
The reason for this is because these are internal, psychological, emotional, and or depending on how you believe, spiritual needs. It is my suspicion that the rise in autoimmune diseases, chronic pain, mood disorders, chemical dependency, and other addictions are potentially the physical and behavioral manifestations created by suffering when these non-physical yet vital human needs are not met. It is also my belief that the source for easing the distress of all these sufferings, be they physical, psychological, emotional, or spiritual, lies at the heart of Gandhi's great quote, be the change you want to see in the world. I know sometimes it can feel like you have no power at all to change the world. It is a very large place, and the problems are vast, and you are one small person. Well, I can tell you firsthand that many people have changed the world without even knowing when they did it. They changed my world. When I first came to Kalamazoo in August of last year, I was unexpectedly abandoned by the only people I knew here and that I thought were supportive friends. It was one of the most devastating experiences of my life. Not only was I completely alone without a soul I could turn to if I needed help, but I was additionally vulnerable because as a transgender person, I was changing my appearance from female to male for the first time in my life. Finding the courage just to go to the grocery store sometimes took all the psychological and emotional strength I could muster. There were days I just laid on the floor in my new house and wept. I'll never forget a particularly rough day when I managed to drag myself to the Meyer store on Gull Road. I would have stayed home that day, but my dogs were running out of food. A woman in the produce section, not an employee, but a fellow shopper with two young children in her cart, offered me the friendliest unsolicited advice about where to get the best sweet onions. Beaming with the brightest smile, she told me all about the farmer's market downtown. She did not even bat an eye at my shaved head or my baggy paint-stained cut-off blue jean shorts. Out of the blue, she was just this kind person offering me advice. That day, she was the change I needed to see in my world. My random encounter with that woman at Meyer granted my heart a spark of hope and interest in seeking more friendly faces. The first place I went was the Kalamazoo Gay and Lesbian Resource Center. There I was immediately met with compassion and offered assistance in mapping out a new plan for support. The second thing I did was start making phone calls to secure a therapist to help with my sadness and my transgender issues. The third thing I did to reach out in the community was visit People's Church. I knew if there was any place I could go and feel safe and accepted by a group of people, it would be a Unitarian Universalist organization. I knew this because I already had a UU family where I came from in Kentucky. On the first day I walked into People's, I saw many friendly faces. David Greenquist shook my hand and welcomed me through the front door. Sharon Karen smiled and talked with me at the welcome desk. She helped me make a name tag and fill out the visitor's roster, and then she explained how to make my way upstairs for the service. Upon entering room 19 for the summer service, I was quickly approached by Catherine Niesink. Catherine told me she was accustomed to sitting in the front of the room, but she decided to sit with me on the back row that day. 
On my next visit to Peoples, I'll never forget talking with Susan Mordyke. She said hello to me while standing in the foyer after the service. When she learned how new I was, she offered to give me a quick tour. She explained that we were standing in a newly constructed part of the church and then escorted me over to view the commons area as well as the new library. In addition to Sunday morning service attendance, I also found warm connections through, the, through other people's activities. No one has brought me more insight and learning about shamanic practices and the language of our dreams than the lovely Lynetta Carnes. I joined her dream circle in September, and I continue enjoying our twice-monthly meetings to this day. I'm also involved in two chalice circles where small groups of us share our thoughts on very meaningful topics. In November, I was invited to participate on the Sunday Service Committee. This has gathered me into close conversations with the Reverend Pam and a wonderful team of incredibly smart, creative, and kind people. In December, I decided to make my connection here official, and I formally became a member of People's Church. I stand before you today being the change I want to continue seeing in my church. I want to see people being open and honest about their fears and their triumphs. I want to see people smiling at each other, getting involved, and offering to help each other when they can. I want to see people sharing meals, telling stories, and offering hugs of both comfort and celebration. By being the smile, the help, the comfort, and sometimes the laughter that I want to see in my church, I am being the change I want to see in the world. It is my belief that if we can warm the heart of just one person, we can potentially ignite a flame of kindness that will spread and illuminate the hearts of many as we simply go about our days of living. That lady in, my, in the Meyer store had no idea how heavily burdened my heart was that day. She simply offered me genuine human kindness, and she changed my world. As I close these words, which have run much longer than the good Reverend Pam budgeted for me, <laughs> I want to ask each of you to fill in the blanks of Gandhi's great quote with whatever pertains to your situation. Be the smile you want to see in the checkout line. Be the patient driver you want to see in traffic. Be the visitor you want to see when you're in the hospital. Be the one who validates neighborhood children when you want to see a better neighborhood. And no matter how you apply yourself to being the change in the world around you, don't forget to also be the self-love, self-patience, and self-kindness that you deserve to see in your own world, too. Wow. Connie, Andrea, Dirk, thank you so much. There's always such spirit in this room anyway, and this is certainly a good thing today because my sermon is of a different style. It's more information sharing. So how perfect that what we've heard already is a, a good Sunday morning enough. And the other is just nice little icing on the cake. Just feeling the generosity that's moving through the room.
With gratitude, we invite our ushers to come forward to pass the offering baskets. Thank you, Jennifer. And knowing that we have the choir to look for, look forward to, if I'm at a place that's not finished, I'll figure out how to work it in next week. And a word to our guests today is that this is an inward-looking sermon to help this historic congregation ponder some ideas that could be helpful in preparing for a new settled minister. May there also be a meaningful message for our guests as you think about personal choices ahead. Topic is the in-between church or the big identity question. In a nutshell, it's about taking a good look at who and how you are now at this point in time in people's church. And with some careful questioning, contemplation, reasoning and imagining, you embrace an understanding of who you are, all the great qualities you value, all the people who give generously of their time, talent, and treasure, and all the important work people's people do in the wider community, being the change you want to see. Then you step back a bit and ask, are there things we would like to see that aren't happening? And it's just as important to ask, is there something here that has lost its fire? So you realize it might be a good decision to drop it. It's a healthy practice to notice that what isn't working optimally and try to address it, 
just as it's healthy to know what you especially like and nurture it. That is an important aspect of the in-between church. You recognize strengths and challenges, both of which will always be part of church life because, after all, it is real life. Questions about strengths and challenges can help you begin to describe your core identity. And from what I picked up at last Sunday's meeting, it sounds like the congregation will do some soul-searching that will help you focus on that core identity so you can courageously express who you are with confidence and pride. And you've heard me say before that I'm amazed at all the hard work and happy work that goes on here, much of which is behind the scenes, And I bet there are people in the room right now who are thinking, you know, I'd like to get more involved. It's time, especially during this important time of transition. Good for you. Your gifts of time and talent will be helpful. And watch for the opportunities posting in the next newsletter or when we can put it up on the web. These are exciting times ahead, and we hope that once the new minister arrives, everyone can feel that they had a part in bringing it together. The search committee does the legal work, but everybody else has a role too. Indeed, many things already happening are important, even precious. And there may be some practices that need a little dusting off, figuratively speaking, while other things may need CPR or a respectable burial. Now, the way you do church may be working for you just fine. But as a newcomer to the system, I would offer a reminder that there may also be other possibilities that could reinforce what's already working well and make it even more satisfying and enticing for newcomers. And thank you so much, Dirk, for sharing what your experience was like. In this in-between place, first appreciating your best gifts and proclaiming them often, then looking both forward and backward, future and past, to seriously check in with each other about who you want to be when it comes time to court a new settled minister. Maybe there's some comfort in knowing that when you've done the work of clarifying your core identity, you have essentially reached a working agreement about what your priorities are here, at least for the next couple of years, and how you will address them. The in-between church also faces other important decisions, such as what to do about organizational structures and practices that served it well in the past but might not be sufficient for the future. Or what do you do about physical space, like an inadequate parking lot that turns people away by default? There are probably solutions to that that don't mean cutting down more trees. Maybe it means there's a point person who would love to coordinate a carpooling option. 
The in-between church also faces, I just said that. (laughs) Let's go to the ministerial candidates who will speak with your church committee about this time next year. Well, your search committee will want to know how you would describe the scope of their work. They will want to find out as much as they can about you to see if they feel like they would be a good fit for what you are looking for, should they be called. So you will want to be very clear about your expectations. And that brings us to an important question. What kind of Unitarian Universalist congregation do you want to be? And this is not related to our beliefs. Rather, it's about function. Let's say it's obvious that you will want to be a church that meets the needs of its members and friends. Yes. You will want to be a church that is consistent with your stated vision. Yes. I could go on with examples, but let's stop for a moment and focus on the critical factor for the in-between church and the decisions it will make about function. The three most common ways that Unitarian Universalist churches function have names. And some of you who have been in different UU congregations will recognize what I'm talking about. For others, if it's new, uh, we can have some more conversation about it. But the first model is called family style or the mom and pop shop. It operates as a grassroots democracy aiming for most decisions to be made as a committee of the whole. In the family style, every member gets a chance to air their views as often as they feel the need. And since it can take months to reach consensus, though, the matriarchs and patriarchs who are the true power center go ahead and make the decision with the rest of the community learning about it sooner or later. Everyone accepts it, generally speaking, Thus, the power is concentrated in the hands of a few key people who tend to hold the reins pretty tightly. And if the power center loses decisive influence in the system, those leaders can feel a significant loss of self-esteem. So they lose their congregation, or so it feels like it to them. And since it functions like an extended biological family where everyone knows everyone else, communication is informal, and some will be uncomfortable with written policies and procedures because that stifles spontaneity. And what happens to visitors? There may be a handshake when they come in, but in social hour, all the regulars are busy talking to each other, and often don't notice the newcomer. That's the family model. The next model is called pastoral. It can be described as a loose coalition of several overlapping networks, unified around a strong minister. The minister functions like a walking communication switchboard, which holds things together to the extent that he or she can. Lay leaders help, of course, but the minister usually has the final word. The pastoral congregation generally is big enough to engage the visitor and small enough to have the aura of a personal touch. 
Democracy is practiced through the board as elected representatives of the people. But town hall meetings are more likely thought of as social opportunities than a place where matters are decided and debated and voted on. What most challenges the pastoral style is often growth in membership. Members can feel uneasy with so many faces they don't know. And the upside of that, the upside of that is that new people bring new ideas, but the pastoral model often doesn't have systems in place to respond to those ideas. Staff and volunteers can come to feel overextended, sometimes because of the ambiguities in the system. Some communication is more challenging because the walking switchboard just can't keep up with it all. In time, new members feel invisible. Without developing a way to actively integrate them, the pastoral congregation becomes a revolving door that warmly welcomes newcomers while bidding farewell to them within a couple of years because the circle of familiarity could not open up enough to include them. The system cannot integrate the guests, so the membership numbers stay roughly the same for years or even decades. You might be thinking, stop, Pam, too much information. Well, I've still got a little bit more time. I'll give you five minutes more. And you're right, it is a lot to take in at once. And thankfully, there will be more time set aside for deeper reflection. So this is just an opening of some meaningful conversation to consider. I recognize that this congregation shares values the shared ministry. So let's talk about the third model called program. And remember, we first talked about family model, pastoral model, then program. The work of the board becomes much more demanding as democracy shifts to decisions made by elected leaders, with some relegated to staff, each of whom is clear about the purview of their decision-making authority. The locus of power rests in horizontal networks of collaboration, hence the shared ministry. The minister's work shifts from direct service to developing leadership and providing guidance and support for those leaders, in addition to leading the Sunday services. And as attendance grows, it takes more staff and lay leadership to manage the needs. But there is less stress because the job descriptions are clear. Backup plans are in place. Communication becomes a key principle for healthy practices, providing multiple ways to keep the communication flowing and the community informed. Unlike the pastoral model where the minister has the final word, in the program church, the board is the locus of power. The larger membership that this model nourishes has the potential to be more diverse with the critical mass of people from several different age and interest groups. The substantial presence of varied populations stimulates creative programming and pluralistic ministry. A downside of the program model is that congregants outside the leadership networks can feel less connected with the minister. 
Individuals can also feel a loss of influence in a particular domain that they worked hard to set up. With good planning, though, the locus for intimacy comes to lie in lateral relationships through well-ordered small group connections. So what happens when a congregation tries to incorporate the favored characteristics of each of these models? (sighs) You take a deep (laughs) breath because you can expect some chaos and confusion about where responsibility lies. In this case, the power center is usually never clear, so decisions often get dropped or they get made without the transparency that you use would expect. I think of Charles Darwin's famous three-word phrase, adapt or die. It's a bit strong in this context, (laughs) but it's worth remembering as you think about transition. Both it, but it is, uh, it's in, Institutions like families survive by adapting to the social, political, economic, and structural changes that might otherwise gobble them up or leave them behind in in, in uncomfortable inertia. Adaptation is a reality that the in-between church must reckon with. And interim ministers also have to adapt to each new place we serve. We listen observe, propose, and advise. And we know that our time with each congregation will be short. So our goal, quite simply, is to learn what the congregation most values as quickly as we can and try to help you describe clearly and collaboratively who you are and what your common vision will be as you move into a new era. It will be important for the leaders to figure out how to focus energy and resources on these priorities. And that's the age-old story of trying to find the path that will serve most of the people most of the time. And that's what makes me feel proud to be a UU. We know we're not perfect. We know we will never have one way that fits everybody. So we know we have to be in the mode of serving most of the people most of the time the best way we can and trust that the others will find their way into the system with the care and welcome that we bring. So the last thing that I will say here and then we will... um, follow this up a little bit more later is that I have been asked how does any congregation ever figure out how to do this well (laughs) for sure it takes trust it takes time it takes buy-in and commitment and one of the most important pieces is information sharing as I've already mentioned Another is doing the homework to identify some of the options and study them. Then be intentional about creating opportunities to discuss your findings. And you're going to have to wait in anticipation about where it goes from here. And I'm going to say some, going to bring some 
spiritual close to what I've just shared. The work that we do from now through May will prime the pump for who you will select as your interim minister for next year and give you a running start on being ready for the for calling the settled minister after that. And there will likely be more church meetings, more surveys, more cottage meetings, more communication all around, all of which will help you make your way through this transition process very well. So will you pause with me now for a good deep breath, a healthy deep breath, a breath that will calmly push away any anxiety, any anxiety that even the thought of that word transition might bring. Will you let the next deep breath invite that beautiful word relax? And other words of comfort like trust, confidence, and joyful anticipation. We pause to listen to our own heart, noticing the feelings that swim to the surface right now. We feel gratitude for whatever those feelings are, knowing that they can be kind and thoughtful teachers. We find the place in our heart that holds our love for this congregation and all the people in it. We breathe a nurturing support for that love to grow. May our love for each other as individuals and our love for the institution nurture our patience and build even stronger goodwill together. Amen. Blessed be. Namaste.